So this winter, we are going to make a very logical shift from studying the covenants in the Old Testament to studying the book of Hebrews. There's no definitive word on who wrote the book of Hebrews. If you have a King James Bible, it would say that it's the Apostle Paul. And uh, I tend to think it is myself, but apparently there is uh, a different, there are different opinions about that. But there is no question that this letter, the letter of Hebrews, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we are going to take a look at it by just progressively working through the book. We're going to begin today with what I consider one of the most powerful and inspiring introductions to one of the books of the Bible that you can find. Probably a second to John 1, which starts off with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And that's a powerful paragraph to start a lesson, or to start a letter with. But this is also, I think, equally powerful. And so I'm going to read from Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand, of the majesty in heaven. Now it's always a good idea to keep in mind who the audience is. Who was this letter written to? And seeing how we don't know who the author is, and it's not very clear or precise as to who the audience is, we have to make some or can make some intelligent uh, conjectures around who that audience is. It's very clear from the book that the audience is the remnant that we spoke about last week. Remember the Apostle Paul, writing the Romans, talked about the fact that there has always been a remnant, that God would fulfill his promises to the patriarchs by maintaining a faithful core of people known as the remnant. And then the Apostle Paul says, actually right now there is a remnant, there is a group of faithful Jews who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and who, during this time, the church age, um, will consistently be fulfilling the promises that God gave to Abraham that all of the world would be blessed through his offspring. And that someday we believe that all Israel will come back into the fold. But the blessing is that, that we get to, at this point, Paul writes, we as Gentiles get to come into the kingdom of God during this church age that we belong to. And so we don't know anything specific, but we are sure that the writer is writing to the remnant, these Jewish believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know this, too, because he starts off with these words in verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. 
Well, who are our ancestors? Well, they're the ancestors uh, that God started his act of redemption through. The Ab Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. That God spoke to them. And we just spent a whole fall talking about how God spoke to those uh, patriarchs. Those people that God wanted to build his kingdom uh, out of. And so we see in that first verse that uh, God is, uh, through this letter, is writing uh, to people that are of the Jewish faith who have come to believe in Jesus Christ have become Christians. The other thing that we need to uh, just know as an introduction is that uh, probably these Jews were not Jews from Israel as much as they were Jews who were spread around Asia Minor. And we know this because the book was written in Greek, and so that, that would be their familiar language. And so this book was written probably as a circular letter, or a letter that was sort of circulated amongst all churches, not a specific church, to Jews who had come to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and properly understood what that meant, that Jesus was the Messiah in the sense that he came to save the world from their sin. Which brings us to the purpose. The author's purpose. We don't know who the author is. We know the target audience. But what is his purpose, which is, of course, the most important thing? And I find that there's one verse, Hebrews 12, 3, that basically sums up the book of Hebrews. And this is it. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, these Jewish converts who had been Jews, they heard the gospel, they became Christians, they became followers of Jesus Christ, would be under intense pressure to convert back to Judaism. They would be persecuted, they would be slandered, they would be abused, they'd be ridiculed, and they would be under intense pressure to give up this new thing, this, this Christianity, and return to Judaism. And so the writer of this letter says, how can I help in this situation? Well, the best way to help is to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he wants his readers to consider Jesus Christ so that they would be encouraged to endure all the hardship that they're enduring because they've made this conversion to the gospel to the to Christianity. And so, just to sum up the introduction, then basically, Hebrews is a letter that is written to Jews who have given their hearts to Christ because they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believe it to be the truth, that Jesus was the Messiah. And it's written to encourage them to persevere, even though they're under a lot of persecution. Now, I wonder if anybody knows this guy here. Any guessers? Anybody know who that is? 
I'd be super surprised if you knew who he was. <laughs> That's my uncle. No. <laughs> you will know. You will. You will know his his last name. You shouldn't probably know his first name, but you will know his last name. His last name is Ponzi. Some ringing now. His first name is Charles. And uh, if you've heard the word Bernie Madoff or the name Bernie Madoff or you've heard other people that have been associated with what is known as the Ponzi scheme, this is the guy who the Ponzi scheme is named after. He's a fraud. <laughs> That's basically what he was. The Ponzi scheme, what Bernie Madoff did, is he basically convinced a lot of people that if they gave him their money, he could get this incredible rate of return, and they would make an awesome investment, and he could give them lots of money back on their return. The problem was he wasn't investing the money. <laughs> he was simply just getting a lot more people to give him money, and then he would start to dole out that money to people who had invested earlier. So in fact, it's a shallow scam, right? It's, it's a hollow game. There is no money being made. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. Charles Ponzi, he was convicted and, and spent a lot of time in jail because of what he was doing was exactly that. He just was getting people to invest in something that truly wasn't an investment. That's what Bernie Madoff is sitting in prison for now doing exactly the same thing. He was a fraud. The author of Hebrews is wanting to the Hebrews that are reading this letter to have confidence in the author of their investment. They've made the biggest investment that anyone could ever make. They've invested their whole lives you know, for me, to be a Christian was pretty easy. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Sunday school. I mean, it was just like drink, it was like breathing the air, right? To be sort of like living in a Christian culture. Eventually, you give your heart to Christ. It's just, it's not hard. But when there are people who are Muslims, practicing Muslims, who convert to Christianity within a Muslim culture, that's an incredible investment because they are going to face opposition for what they've done. This is what it is like for these Hebrews who are reading this letter. They've invested everything and they are facing opposition. They're being called heretics, right? They're being ridiculed. They're saying, people are saying, you need to get back to the truth of Judaism. And so what the writer's trying to do is say, look at this is an Aponzi scheme. Jesus Christ is not Charles Ponzi. What you've invested in is based on the validity, the excellence of the author of their investment, Jesus Christ. And so that's why he says, consider him, Jesus Christ. Consider him. When you start to question, was this the right decision? Have I made a mistake? Because Jesus Christ is the underwriter of your faith. He is the one that you've invested in. 
Now, he starts off by describing who it is that they put their faith in, they put their trust in, that they've invested their life in. And he says in Hebrews 1, in verse 2, that he is the Son. This is remarkable. <laughs> this is uh, revolutionary. This is saying that Jesus Christ is from the royal family of God. <laughs> in other words, he's part of the royal family of God. God's his last name. That's surname. Think about this. If you were turning 65 years of age and you had the privilege of inviting a member of the royal family to your birthday party, right? Who would you invite to that birthday party? Well, I know who I would. Who would you? Harry. Harry. I know he's cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, who would you invest? I know that me personally, I, I go big or go home, right? I'd invite the queen herself. My goodness. Queen Elizabeth, come to my 65th birthday. She'll send you a card. She'll send you a card thing. <laughs> I'm not turning 100. <laughs> but if Charles showed up, oh. it'd be kind of a letdown, right? <laughs> I invited. Queen Elizabeth and Charles showed up. Especially for Oh, man. I'd be disappointed. We have to be careful when we see the word Son of God that we don't all of a sudden drop him down a notch like I just did with Elizabeth and Charles. And that's because Queen Elizabeth and Charles are not part of a holy trinity. We talked about the egg there. The Son of God does not mean that he is lesser than the Father. Like Charles is lesser than the Queen at this point. right? And we have to be careful not to do that when we hear Son of God. We can't diminish who he is because he is part of the Trinity. And actually, sonship more reflects his role within the Trinity than it does authority. Very important to keep that in mind. And so, he is the son. He is not just another prophet, you know, who's come and taught us great things. You didn't invest your whole life in some philosophy or some theology espoused by some human. You invested your life in Jesus Christ the Son of God. You have invested your life in deity. Not just a prophet. And so he wants to make that very clear. He says our ancestors um, heard from God through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his very Son. He's the Son of God. Next. He says, the Son of God, or Jesus Christ, was appointed heir of all things. 
<laughs> what does that mean? Appointed heir of all things. I think of it this way. If, if Jesus Christ is the heir of this world, as it is right now, he should turn his back on us and walk away. Because it's a mess, right? It's a mess. We are destroying this world. Think of the polluted oceans. Think of the political chaos. Think of the immorality, immorality, sorry. The violence, the hatred, the greed. No, thank you very much. <laughs> if that's my inheritance, I don't want it. But Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. And so we need to know what the idea is there. What is he the heir of? Just this broken, devastated planet that's all messed up? I like this passage from Psalm 2. This has been ascribed to Jesus Christ and is about Jesus Christ. These are God's words. You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. But listen to this. You'll break them with the rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. So what is the inheritance? Well, Zondra was reading it earlier. What is the inheritance? Peter writes these words. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you, ought you to be? You ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And so the inheritance that Jesus Christ comes into is not a devastated earth that's been abused by sin. The inheritance that Jesus Christ comes into is actually the fruit of his labors. It is a redeemed world. It is a new heaven and a new earth where there is only righteousness. That's the inheritance. I'll just read it again, what, what Zander read earlier. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy, holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his holy people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now that's an inheritance that Jesus Christ can look forward to. He is the heir of all things. Guess what, folks? Jesus says that you are a co-heir. Romans 8. You are co-heirs with Christ. And this is your inheritance. A new heaven, a new earth, where there is none of the devastations of sin. 
only holiness and righteousness. The author continues to strengthen the profile, the CV, if you will, the resume of the author of their life's investment. He says in verse 2, through whom also he made the universe. You know, the only difference between the persons, the three persons of the Trinity, the shell, the yoke, and the white, is their role. And one of the roles of Jesus Christ was actually the making of the universe, our reality. The Son was the one who spoke all that is into being. Paul concurs, Colossians 1, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, Thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. John, who wrote that powerful introduction to his letter, the gospel of Jesus Christ says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. We know the Word is Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So, so far, the author of Hebrews, in, in giving the CV, in giving the credentials of the one that they've invested their entire lives in, has said that he is the Son of God. He is God. He is the heir of all things, and he created everything. But he's not done. He says the Son, in verse 3, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Not only is the Son heir and creator, he's the exact representation. The Apostle Paul writes, once again, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself said in John 10, I and the Father are one. If you see me, you see the Father. What an incredible truth that is. You know, one of the things that I think is pull, causing people in the United States to pull out their hair about the Trump administration is that the miscommunication within the administration is, is crazy because Trump will say something and then someone else will come out and say, well, this is what he meant. Then somebody else will come out and say, well, he's actually saying. Do you, do you see what? The thing is, in the administration of the Trinity, when Jesus Christ says it, it is what the Father says. It is what the Holy Spirit says. It is what Jesus says. It's what God says. There's no miscommunications. There's no breakdowns or misunderstandings. And so when Jesus spoke it, it was what the Father spoke. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that, didn't he? He says, I only tell you, I only say what God the Father tells me to say. There's no inconsistency. There's no breakdown. This is the word of God to you. No further clarifications required. So, so far, the author of Hebrews, in writing to these investors of their lives, 
has said that their investment in the kingdom of God is in the all-powerful hands of God himself. <coughs> He's not done yet. <laughs> but this is a powerful passage. These are incredible credentials of the one that these folks have invested their lives in. He says, the Son of God, the heir, the one who made the universe, who is the exact representation of God, is actually at this moment sustaining all things by his powerful word. As the song goes, he's got the whole world in his hands. He sustains by his word. If he did not sustain it, if he took his attention away from the world, it would no longer exist. Think about it. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and the sea is crazy that day. The boat's falling apart. It's so rough out there. Jesus is sleeping. Why is he asleep? Well, because there's no sweat, right? <laughs> And they wake him up. We're going to die. What does he do? Settle down now. Just settle down. And the earth settles down. The seed settles down. He sustains all things by his powerful word. In Colossians 1, again, Paul writes, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love this passage from Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah is writing to Israel. And he's basically you know, telling them to smart up. <laughs> You've lost your way yet again. Come back to God. And in order to basically speak of the credibility of God, God uses Jeremiah to say this. This is what the Lord says. It's an interesting quote. If I've not made my covenant with day and night and established the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's just read that again. Let it sink in. If I have not made my covenant with the day and the night and established the laws of heaven and earth, then I will reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here is a colloquial way to say what God is saying. I will break my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when hell freezes over. Yes. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Oh, and by the way, I can freeze hell over. <laughs> he sustains everything by his power. He's totally in control. The author of Hebrews, not done yet. He wants to ensure the recipients of this letter. He wants them to know that the act 
that procured their investment. That which was done to enable them to invest their lives was effective and is insured. It was effective and it's insured. He writes this, end of verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins. That is the act which enabled them to make the, their investment. Their sins were purified. They were made clean before a holy God. And therefore they could invest their whole lives and be accepted by a holy God. That is the act that made their investment possible. We read in 1 John 1, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, that was the point of Jesus Christ's coming, was to purify us so that we could be back in communion with a pure and holy God. That is the work that had to be done by Jesus Christ so that these Hebrews could invest their lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's an insurance policy that comes with that. The insurance of this transaction is this. He purified you from your sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The fact that Christ is not dead, even though he was crucified, is proof positive. Is there insurance policy that in fact what they have invested their lives in is sure, is foolproof, is rock solid. You can bank on it. The Apostle Mark writes these words. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. That is where Jesus is right now. He's at the right hand of the Father. Having been crucified, he rose from the grave, and now he sits in his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, the Majesty. Pretty good CV, don't you think? Pretty good resume this Jesus has. Right? Deity, creator of everything, heir of everything, sustainer of everything, right? The one who purified us and who is now sitting at the right hand of God. Do you think he's worth your investment? Yes. It's not a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> this isn't a fraudulent transaction. You're not a fool for investing your life. And so as much as the author is writing to his fellow <coughs> Jews, the members of the remnant, his words are for us today as well. You have made an investment it might cost you not as much as it cost these guys a long time ago. 
Increasingly it will in our world. And maybe we will have the joy of knowing persecution for being followers of Jesus Christ. I said that right. Maybe we will have the joy of sharing in the suffering of Christ. It will happen to people just like you and me someday as our world increasingly rejects Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But right now, quite frankly, it's not that big a deal. It's not that hard to invest your life in Jesus Christ, which is still pretty tolerant society. But it's changing. But we've invested our whole lives in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews wants you to know you've made a very good investment. It's underwritten by the Son of God himself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. I thank you for your great plan of redemption. I thank you so much that your plan included self-sacrifice on your part. That the third or second person of the Trinity, sorry, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, would come and take on humanity, become flesh, live amongst us. Would be willing to be humiliated, ridiculed, to die a sinner's death, to be a scandal so that we could be purified and made whole be seen by you as faultless Lord we praise you because you are this Jesus who chose us before creation and then created us You are the one who sustains everything by the power of your word. You are the heir of everything. Not this brutal, messed up world that we have created. But that beautiful new heaven and new earth that you're willing to share with us. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of the investment of our very lives. And we thank you. We praise you. We worship you. You are worthy. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.